You're listening to Episode 7 of Built Blocks, the podcast about cities, architecture, buildings, and everything in between. I first learned about developer Kevin Cavanaugh's work years ago when I ran a building trade magazine. His Box Plus One project was, at the time, revolutionary here in Portland. With its garage door windows and boxy exteriors, now commonplace, and small footprint of space, the project helped elevate an entire neighborhood. Other projects soon followed, some smaller, some larger, all under his company name, Gorilla Development. Since I'm keenly interested in small-scale incremental projects that change neighborhoods for the better, whether that's restoring an existing building, something Kevin says should be and could be done on any building, or using a smaller footprint to build something on, he intentionally built smaller projects. I was wrong about that. He talks about why he builds small and maybe someday why he'll go bigger. We also speak at length about his fair-haired dumbbell, a somewhat controversial project in Portland. If you're listening, hop on to BuiltBlocks.com so you can see what we're talking about. The building is not only striking in its look, it was also crowdfunded, and everyone in town has an opinion about this building. The interview also takes a turn and explores how a developer in Portland can create cool projects, make a profit, and be altruistic about the whole thing. That's not the usual developer line in any city, really. Thanks for listening. Hi, Kevin. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Of course, happy to be here. Yeah. Hey. So um, I've you know I've been doing a lot of research on you. I've I've you know following your um, you know career. I used to write for trade publications, and I've written about some of your projects in the past. And and um, one one thing I've noticed is is um, you you tend to build on a lot of the small scale side of things. I mean, not all your projects are. Um, can you talk a little bit about? Um, you know, what are the advantages of small scale and, and, and why you like that type of, of, of building? Sure. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. It's not by design per se. It's just by pocketbook. That's how it started. Um, oftentimes people say, Hey, how does small scale compare to big scale? And I, I don't know. I've never done big scale. So I, I, I can't really compare the two. I mean, the fair haired dumbbell is a big project, but when you, to me, it's a big project. When other developers look at it, they say, "Oh, how cute!" That's a you know, look at that little mignon thing. And so, it's small scale. Just started because you know, when I first did the box and one or Ode to Roses, that's you know, I had some rental houses at the time that I was doing on the side, and I was trying to kind of build a little micro empire of single family restoration projects close in north and northeast and southeast Portland, and that's what I could buy with the proceeds of selling, you know, two rental houses. I could buy the land and get the loan for Ode Roses or, or the box and one. And so it was just a function of my horsepower. And that, and I, and that, that led me towards small stuff. And yeah, I like small stuff. I've actually, I've actually tried, I, I owned back in the day, a full city block in the downtown core on the, on the fringe of the downtown core I bought that 12 years ago, and I don't own it anymore. And I've designed so many variations of skyscrapers and big-ass buildings for that site, and they're all pretty bad. And I I seem to be more capable, I think, at a smaller scale. doesn't mean that on my career, and when I'm going to try it again, I want to do a, a, a big building one of these days, but it, it needs to be good. That's more important than just doing it to do it. 
Yeah, yeah, because a, a lot of what I've read about small scale design in the last year or so, it's it's it seems more deliberate. Um, you know, uh, um, it's it seems well, I don't know about I don't know about easier, but it seems like a lot of uh, you know planners or designers or, or architects are are trying to find that small space and then fund it and get it get it built or, or rebuilt, and it seems to be easier to manage. So I, I you know, is do you, do you find that? true or is it does it bring the same the same problems as a, a larger building with it well your, your exposure is smaller of course so if my loan is a million dollars on a smaller building versus 10 million dollars on a bigger building you know it in theory the problems or hiccups or issues are are smaller dollar amount issues as well so you know your your risk exposure is smaller although so i never choose anything based on risk that's a whole other other podcast interview, um, (laughs) (laughs) the definition of risk, but the definition of enough is, is important to me. So 2017 for me is going to be the year of defining what enough is. So, um, getting back to the main, main question of amount of work, small scale versus large scale, a number of bigger developers have told me over and over again that, Hey, Kevin, one of your smaller projects has as much work in it from the development side as one of our big projects, we just like doing big projects because we make more money, more money per hour, more, it's more efficient, all those things. And that's great. If that's your number one goal, my number one goal isn't, isn't making as much money as possible. I want to make money. I want my stuff to be profitable. I don't want to do little odes to my ego or odes to um, a, a concept that, that can't be replicated because it's not profitable, but it's not the, number one thing. So if I spend more more time per square foot on a smaller project, because I touch more of it and I'm more that the details matter more, um, that's that's fine. It's it's a it's it's enough. It's profitable enough compared to how much time I put into it. And plus I keep all my stuff long term. So it doesn't matter if it how profitable it is for me this year. In ten years I'm going to be really happy I put all that effort into it when I was creating the the thing in the first place. You you had talked about the Box Plus One project, and that's, I think, the first project I became aware of of, of your work. And I remember at the time um, kind of being blown away because you, I think you were, work, you were working full-time for um, a, a firm in town, but then this was almost like your, your site thing. Um, is that is that accurate? Kind of. Um, I didn't want, so I, I, I was working at Fletcher Far Iat, which I was an intern architect, not licensed, um, and it was a midsize, for, it is, is a midsize firm in town. Really good firm, happy with them. They're actually the architect of record for the, the fair hair dumbbell, so it's, it's neat to create these relationships and go back to them, even with your career moving in a different path than it was originally. So I, I was toiling away at, at, at FFA, and I wasn't a designer per se, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the guy wearing fancy, you know, round glasses and a black turtleneck <laughs> with a window seat. Um, I was one of the guys in the middle pod somewhere, just kind of cranking away on details for stair handrails or you know ADA toilet remodels. Um, and I, but I knew I was a good designer, um, not great, but good. And, and I, I also knew that I was going to be spending years and years before I would get to one of those window seats. So I just kind of decided to take 
more control of the situation, which is it's funny because that's what I mostly when I lecture to architects, uh, I we are such a passive profession, and what I've chosen to do is just become less passive in it and grab phase zero and become a developer and hire myself instead of waiting for someone enlightened to hire me. Screw it. I'll just take a shortcut and hire myself. Um, but getting back to the idea of, of the box and one and FFA, I, I, my wife and I had two young kids at the time. We now have three. Um, they're not young, but that's another story. Um, we, uh, I don't want to work on the side. I don't want to moonlight. I don't want to work eight hours a day, then go home and work another three or four hours a day. So I approached my bosses at FFA and I said, hey, could I, could I actually be the client? Could I hire you? But could I then work on the project? And they, they could have said no for a lot of reasons. It was a pretty small project. It wasn't going to bring in a lot of money. And you know they do museums. They did the, the central library remodel. They've done some big projects, and this was tiny. Um, I'm lucky they said yes, because I just didn't want, I didn't want to work more than eight hours a day, but I needed that paycheck still. So it was funny because every, every other Friday I would get handed a paycheck and then I would get handed a, an invoice for three times the amount of the paycheck. And, and that actually worked for me. It, it, uh, I, I factored that into the budget. So I had an architect and engineering fee of X plugged into the project budget and I knew it was going to be bigger than my salary, but that's not, that didn't matter. It, it allowed me to use all the horsepower of FFA and all the smart people in the office. And, um, they helped detail it and draw it and help me save me from my own mistakes as an intern. And it was a great way to go. And then I refer to it as, as shifting one's weight. As you change careers, just, you know, I, I went from being employed to self-employed and it's difficult to do that on a random Thursday. So I, I talk about shifting my weight from the, the big boat to the little dinghy or to the canoe. If you jump into the canoe from the big boat, you are going to end up in the water every time. But if you slowly transfer your weight, it works really well. So I was at FFA, did my first development while at FFA. I did Ocho Roses, the next development while at FFA. And then lo and behold, I kind of woke up on that Thursday instead of jumping into the canoe and I realized that my income from both of those projects equaled my salary. So, well, golly, I can quit and it's not a painful process. It's a really easy transition into becoming a self-employed developer. And that's how it went. So I, 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 I know you've also done some adaptive reuse stuff too, right? Is, is, um, I know. Yeah. And, and that's to me is, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a professional architect or designer. I've, I've been, you know, writing about it. And to me, adaptive reuse is, I, I love it because, um, you know, I love the older architecture. I think buildings, older buildings have good bones, you know, the kind of the usual stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think I was talking to this about this earlier. I, you know, spoke to, um, um, an architect and a building owner a couple of years ago. They had built this really cool, um, um, new, new project on Alberta. And there was an old church there. And I said, Hey, why didn't you keep the church? That would have been cool to have the church. And they said, well, you know, it was infested. It was neglected. It's asbestos, rotten beans, rodent infestation. There was a money pit, just so many challenges like that. Is there a certain spot? As as you're doing adaptive reuse, where you have to say, "Screw it, this is we just we just have to start from scratch," or do you do you have to just push it until you find a way to do that? Um, so that's a good question. I I usually everything can be saved. It, it, at some juncture, you pay too much money to save it for the building. 
and Portland's starting to get to a place where the price of dirt is is pretty high, and people are buying buildings to get to the dirt so they can knock it down, whatever they're down, and build up you know a six story, frankly you know piece of crap, you know multi unit apartment building. So, but the funny thing is, I even then that's just because that's most developers have a formula and they try to shove every product in into that formula whether it makes sense or not. So I, I'm, I live in a old 1919 warehouse that I converted into a fourplex. And they're big three and four bedroom family sized apartments basically. And it's a, it's a really fun adaptive reuse. It was never built. It was built as a dairy, as a library stable, stable actually, and, you know, owned by a dairy farm and then turned into a auto body shop and then turned into a printing press and then turned into my house and my neighbor's houses. Um, but I made an offer on the building, and a competing offer came in, same price as mine, full price offer, and that was just going to be from someone to knock it all down and build four crappy, you know, Renaissance homes or whatever the version of these kind of crappy, big ass ticky tacky houses that are getting thrown up all over town. So I, I competed against that guy, and I'm I'm just lucky that the seller said yes to me and not to him. But I'm sure his stuff was profitable. But my stuff was pretty damn profitable. So keeping it and doing an adaptive reuse was really profitable. I ju- I'm just wrapping up a product on on Sandy and 25th right now where I, I bought a 21,000 square foot building. So what they teach you in development school um, or as a developer is, and here's the, ta- the tangent, by the way, is that you know, you've got to find your highest and best use. And that's a phrase that developers say all the time. And... It's a good phrase. I don't mind the phrase, but the phrase has been distorted in recent years here in Portland, and I think elsewhere too. And what people are really just doing is highest use, but they've forgotten the word best. Uh, and just because it's the you put the biggest possible building you can on any site, because you buy a building, you think, well, I got to knock it down and go as big as I can, because that's what they taught me. That's what the highest and best use means. It's not what it means. It means you you fit whatever makes sense onto the site and you look through numerous lenses at different opportunities and options to what that design could be. One of them being an adaptive reuse, one of them being keeping the building. So there's this 21,000 square foot building on 25th and Sandy. It covers the entire site. Anybody else, any other developer that I can imagine would tear it down and build a six story building because you're allowed to go six stories high. That's a huge site. It's 120,000 square foot building. Um, And I'm sure it, pretty profitable. I am back to the comment of defining enough. I'm keeping the building. I'm actually tearing out 5,000 square feet of the middle like a donut. I'm ripping out the roof. I'm ripping out the concrete floors and I'm planting grass and trees. You can't see it from the outside, but when you get into the building, there's a huge 5,000 square foot private courtyard in there with mounds of of lawn and, and shrubs and trees and a ping pong table and a bunch of offices that open out onto this. And so I actually am having, instead of 120,000 square feet, I only have a 16,000 square foot building. I have a smaller building now than when I bought it. But the funny thing is as an adaptive reuse, it was an old auto body shop. Again, that tends to be a thing that I'm buying these days, a lot of of auto body shops. Now it's going to have 13 tenants, offices and retail. And it makes a really good annual return. It makes close to a 20% per year return when you count 
the appreciation and the cash flow and the, the loan getting smaller, all that stuff, when you count it over a 10-year time frame, it makes an annual 20% return. I don't, and I never analyzed how much 120,000 square foot, six-story building would have made, but I'm happy. I mean, I'm ecstatic with a 20% return. Anyone who's not ecstatic, by the way, with a 20% annual return is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so adaptive reuse, it usually, it oftentimes works, but people just don't allow themselves to go through the process of analyzing it. They just, they, I do this, all I have is a hammer, so everything is a nail. I do multifamily, big-ass apartment buildings, so that's what anything I touch is going to become. I think that's a sad state of affairs in, in Portland development right now, at least. I, I mean, do you think that's because a lot of these developers just aren't tied to their neighborhoods? I mean, I, I, for you, I think, I mean, you live here, this is Portland's your community. Does that have a lot to do with it, if you live in a community? And, and I'm, I'm not, not, not to keep going back to the small-scale stuff, but that's kind of their, you know, the mantra. It's like, hey, if you want your community to be better, why don't you do some small-scale stuff and you know, do something cool and open up a coffee shop or, or whatever? I mean, does it tie back into that kind of hometown pride mixed with some more knowledge that maybe the, the typical developers is like, screw it, tear it down, it's an auto body shop, you know, put up yeah. six-level six multifamily, call it done. I wish it, I wish it was that simple as saying the thoughtful stuff is done locally and the crappy stuff is done from out-of-state developers. But um, I think you can guarantee that the out-of-state developers are, are going to do crappy stuff. They're going to do big, um, bigger is better, and maximizing their their check at the end of the day. Because it's a frothy market right now, and people aren't keeping their buildings. So, you know, if I'm not going to hold on to this thing forever, I'm going to build the biggest thing I can because it means the paycheck at the end of the project is as big as it possibly can. But sadly, there are a lot of people who live here in town who are following that same formula because at the end of the day, you know, it's a seven figure check and I'd rather have that than a six figure check. I'd rather, I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, that's, I'm, I'm quoting them and it, it, they're not questioning enough. It's a lot. And why, you know, let's make, let's make hay while the sun is shining. The next recession's likely looming around the corner. Um, bigger is better. Highest and best use, blah, blah, blah. There are a lot of local fellas, and when I say fellas, sadly, real estate developers tend to look like me, you know, middle-aged white guys, at least in Portland. Um, and a lot of fellas are are just following this the same formula, whether they're whether they live in this zip code or not. So, do you th- um, do you think the city, and, and this is uh, you know Portland. Um, specific question, but it could be, you know, anybody listening in, does, does, does the city make it easier or harder to do, um, um, you know, adaptive reviews? And, and the reason I ask is I was touring a building one time a couple years ago as it was being, um, you know, re, re, redone. And, and the owner was like, yeah, we just got a $250,000 you know, bill from the city because, you know, we didn't have a bearing wall in the back and we, now we have to build, you know, X, Y, Z, um, is, is, are there more hurdles? Do you think if you're doing adaptive reuse, like more, more or surprises, I should say? Well, yeah. Well, so, so yes and no. So the first question, are there more hurdles? No, they're just different hurdles to doing new construction. Are there more surprises? Yes. There's, I mean, new construction is you, you scrape it or you have a piece of dirt. And when you go up, you know, every stick and every connection and every, you know, where every rivet and every screw is going, and it's 
it's it's more of an engineering piece. It's more artwork on some level to do adaptive reuse because you tear into it and you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. So you have to be able to think on the fly. You've got to be creative. Um, and but there's not more hurdles. They're just they're just different hurdles. I mean, I you know it's so you're going to have to do things as you mentioned, build a build a half a million dollar bearing wall or do some structure because you kind of well you didn't anticipate something. However, when you build from the ground up, you just have dirt and everything you create, you've got to pay for. When you have a shell of a building, I mean, the, the fourplex where I live, I've got this amazing brickwork and exposed wood trusses that are, you know, hundred years old and, you know, sandblasted ceilings. And it's so much that that's the person that I was competing with was going to tear that all down and put that in a landfill. So that's virtually free for me. If, you know, if, if you have a shell for the cost of the dirt, you're, the, the benefit of adaptive reuse is your starting point. You're already way ahead of the game. So when you get those other hurdles thrown at you, typically you have a, enough slush in your pro forma and your project and your spreadsheet that you could deal with it. And that's what, that's what I found at least. It's, it's, it's slight, adaptive reuse is slightly more profitable for me than new construction. So, but most of what people say is the opposite. Right, I don't right. know why. <laughs> well, that segues really well into new construction, which is the um, fair-haired dumbbell. It's it's being built. I drove by it the other day and, and uh, um, almost slammed on my brakes to look at it, which was probably not a very smart move. But let's talk about the design in a second. But I want to talk how how you used um, crowdsourcing to get investors to, to build it and kind of what that process and that journey looked like. Sure. Well, this is this could be a long answer, so feel free to jump in if I'm going down the rabbit hole too much. Um, in the recession, I got my ass handed to me. I just I lost everything and then some, and I was really upset at, at banks. Not necessarily big banks, just um, um, banks in the banking industry. Um, you know, Umpqua was really good to me. MNT Bank was really good to me, but Pacific Continental Bank, all takes is one, um, was really really just almost sadistic with me and single-handedly started a, a, a domino effect that forced me to sell all my buildings. Um, and I was really upset. With, and it, when the times are good, like now, everyone is friends. Everyone's happy. Everyone's making money and, and there's no hard feelings. You really learn a lot about people and institutions when times are bad. You know, Umpqua called me in on my Roses loan and said, hey, you're your ratios are off, but we can do these couple things that really help it a lot. And um, and we need your help, but you need our help. So let's do this together. And I'm like, that's a great idea. Uh, Pacific Island called me in on the rocket loan and just said, "We're we're coming after you. This is you know we're um, it's almost like you know a, a blood sport to them at the time. You had no idea, you know, two years prior when you're getting into bed with a bank and they're giving you a bunch of money and you're signing the loan documents, how people are going to act. And it's not just institutions, it's individuals as well. When, when things are, are going sideways. So I didn't want to forget that. I, so I'm doing the fair haired dumbbell and I wanted to crowdfund it because I wanted to two things. I wanted to minimize the voice of the bank to some degree, more money I bring in from crowdfunding, the less, the smaller the loan I need and the, the, uh, the, the voice is a little less powerful that the, the bank has at the table. That's one thing. Second thing is 
there's this wealth gap in America, and the recession exacerbated that. And I didn't want the owners of the fair-haired dumbbell, along with me, just to be a bunch of rich guys. And, um, and that tends to be the investor profile. Again, it's kind of male-dominated, and it's, it's, a, it's a pretty monolithic, monochromatic demographic and it's and I you know I, I wanted to I wanted to open that up a little bit. So by crowdfunding I allow unaccredited investors, which by definition means you know not rich people, school teachers, mechanics, librarians, to own the building with me. They're typically not invited to the table. These are deals that they don't know about. These are deals that happen in private clubs and you and I are drinking a gin gimlet and we're talking about you know, what do you have on your docket? Well, I got this, you know, oh, I'd like a piece of that action. No one talks in those, in those ways um, at the PTA meeting. No one talks about that when you're, at, you know, at the, at the coffee shop hanging out with your buddies. So I wanted to invite people like, like my wife. She's a hospice nurse. She has a couple of different investment options, but there's, it's not a broad array that an accredited investor, a wealthy person has for their portfolio. I want my wife to be able to invest $3,000 and own a piece of true equity, own a piece of that building and be invited to the table that she wouldn't otherwise be invited to. So that's, that's the, the nexus of the idea. And I mean, it sounds like it's successful and it worked and you, you've got the funding to obviously start it. Yeah. As of last week, we started this process in April and as of last week, we raised our, we capped out our $1.5 million dollars. Um, and there are sadly there's about a half a million dollars in offers that I you have to make an offer and then I've got to say yes to you and then you've got to read the paperwork and fill it out. I mean there's a, there's a, a lot of steps to the process. So I've had about two million dollars worth of offers, and once I get 1.5 million wired into the account, I have to stop. And no, and so there's a half a million dollars worth of everyday people who wanted to put money in the dumbbell that are left at the train station and now the train's pulling away. So, so I want to do it again because I think there's a large appetite for this a and B it does, uh, you know, help to, to, to shorten that gap, um, in the wealth spectrum in America. So I'll, I'll do it again, but for now I'm pretty exhausted from the you know, rough, rough for two out two years of work I've put into this working with the sec and working with a bunch of lawyers. So it's, it's been fascinating, but now I just want to build a building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do do you think um, the the building, the style of it, and the looks of it, which we will talk about in a second, which I keep saying, but do you think, you know, that 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 attracted more funders as opposed to like, hey, I've got a, uh, uh, you know, four story mixed use. It's brown. It's gray. Um, uh, you know, That's I need funders. Yeah. Sorry, I, I cut you off there. I. It is a great question. I so I I I can say yes almost emphatically, and not because I think it's. A, a great design. Um, but so Fundrise is the name of a Washington DC based company. And they were my original partners on the crowdsourcing. They're the biggest and best crowdfunding uh, platform in the, in the commercial real estate world. So like three years ago, they reached out to me and, and I'm like, Hey, we were going to come to Oregon. Uh, Portland's the best, makes the most sense as a city. And we've looked at a bunch of developments, the fair dumbbell makes a lot of sense for us to start out on our platform for our first Oregon project. Do you want a partner? Do you want us to put it up on our website 
in a test the waters phase just to see if this was a project, who's interested and how much would you invest? I'm like, well, that sounds great. They did it. We had a cap at $1.5 million just to see if, if, if $1.5 million in, you know, quote unquote, fake investors or people who like are just showing interest. If we got that, then we know it's real and we can go forward and, and do it, do all the, the brain damage of working with the SEC and doing all that other work. We blew through $11 million in a, in a couple of months, and there were 1,500 people who signed up to my network before we just shut it off and stopped. We, you know, Okay, we've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is attractive. While mine was up, there were strip malls in Fort Worth, Texas, and kind of suburban office buildings and you know, in Peoria, other products were up alongside mine and, and they were languishing. You know, they maybe got to their number. Half of them got to the number they were hoping for. Half of them didn't. While I blew through the ceiling, it, I don't think it's because I'm special. I think Portland, Oregon has a huge brand right now and people want to be part of that. So I, I don't think it's just the dumbbell by any stretch. I think it's the city mostly. But also, to some degree, I think the fact that I was—I had this really vibrant, energetic building, sitting next on the on the website, sitting right next to you know a, a beige building in Fort Worth, um, and I was offering the same returns. I think it made it easy for people to click online and not not the other projects. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. Um, Change the subject a little bit. If you ever go on Kickstarter. There's like a graveyard of just fail fail <laughs> projects where it's 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 kind of yeah. it's kind of sad and I, I I imagine you know there's a lot of beige concrete looking buildings that never saw the light of day as well. Yeah, but which is but I think it's important to prove to the outside world. I want other business folk and other developers to look and at least they don't have to do what I do by any stretch, but. They maybe want to rethink what they do um, if if they're seeing deeper success with a different model. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. So let's let's finally talk about the exterior. I've been I've been bringing that up the whole interview. Um, um, <laughs> um, I think I mentioned this to you last time. Um, I. I posted a, a, a photo of it on my Facebook page and I said something like, Hey everybody, you know, I'm going to be interviewing, um, the, the, the designer and architect behind this, any questions you want me to ask him. And, you know, some of the questions were, you know, what's the materials? What the hell? <laughs> WTF? <laughs> no, but it was like, is this, is the, is this, is this, is the exterior going to be permanent? What's the material being used? Is it going to change? Like, has an artist been chosen? Um, you know, and those are kind of pretty much kind of the same questions, you know, I was going to ask is, is, is is that sheathing around there? Is that paint? What and 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 you, those listening, yeah. go on to builtblocks.com. I'll have a photo up there so you can see what we're talking about. Pause this, go on the site, look at it, and, and then come back. So, anyways, yeah. The, well, and by the time they do that, when is this going to air? By the um, way? probably the next couple of weeks, right after right after Christmas, probably. Okay. Okay, so I will hang up with you when I'm done when we're done, and I will email you. I've chosen the artist, James Jean, out of LA, is the artist. I've chosen the artwork. It's it's crazy. It's it's more than what I proposed, which was gift wrapped with a Florentine hyper vibrant, colorful um, uh, pattern, almost paisley. And the new design that I've chosen is, is goes beyond that. Um, when you made a reference to you know um, 
driving by it and having to slow down. And I literally, and I've said this before, and I and I don't mind the statement, although maybe my lawyer wants me to rephrase it. But I'm not. I'm not only. I'm not afraid of accidents happening in front of my building. I want little fender benders in front of my building, uh, in front of the fair hair dumbbell, because people are staring at the building and not the car in front of them. And it's not that, of course, I don't, I don't want that, but I want to live in a city where that exists. I want to live in a city where people are really taking note of what's around. We go to Amsterdam or Paris or, you know, more recently Berlin, or just, there's some amazing architecture in amazing cities and I don't want to drive around Paris, not because of the traffic. I want to I want to walk around Paris because I want to stare at the buildings. I want to stare at everything. Um, Portland's not Paris. Portland's not there yet. But I and by the way, people will hate the dumbbell. People will think the dumbbell is a horrific um, attempt at sculpture or art or you know. Uh, the, the people will hate it. But it will be it, it's an aspirational building. Um, it's it. it it wants to do more than be that beige background building in Fort Worth. And I think Portland deserves aspirational buildings. Um, but, oh crap, what was your question, John? <laughs> Actually, there was like five. I can't, I went too deep. I can't bring the tangent back now. There was like five questions. So in, 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 in your defense, I, um, uh, you know, the, the materials being used, you know, the, uh, the yeah. artist shows if the material is going to change. There, there's a building, uh, it's across the street from the Commonwealth on, um, in downtown on not six, I think it's six. Mm-hmm. And they've got this, uh, um, pattern on the front of it and it it changes as i think according to the season so you know in the fall it's kind of got a you know orange pattern so i'm wondering if that's i mean that's that's going to stay is it going to change every two years three years or is that is that it gotcha so so it's um there's a stucco rain screen on the exterior of the of the building and um so it'll be true painted stucco and a stucco is like a billboard so it's not actually it doesn't do anything other than just cosmetically. Um, uh, it doesn't. It's not even intended to keep the water off the building. The water is allowed to get behind it, and behind it is, is all the engineering and the guts of the building that's going to keep it waterproof. So this thing is just a cosmetic skin on the building, and it's and it's true stucco. So you can you know throw a baseball at it, and it's not. It's just, it's 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 very stout. Um. Uh, a crew, Dan Cohen is a local artist who's going to work with James Jean, the, the LA-based artist. And he, Dan and his crew of eight will descend on the building next spring and hand paint James's art onto the building. And they're using Keim, K-E-I-M. It's a German mineral paint. So it's not paint like you or I know of that when we paint our house. It, it chemically bonds to the stucco and it, in theory, has a lifetime warranty. Um, there are we, we're right now testing some of the deep saturation colors, like the deep reds. They might they might fade over a decade or you know twelve to fourteen years. So we might have to repaint the red or maybe the a bright yellow, depending on the actual the pigment. But we're gonna roughly every twenty years we're gonna repaint the building, um, and it it'll be a different piece of art. We're, I'm working with the city and with RAC, which is the Regional Arts and Culture Commission. All public art in the city goes through RAC. Um, I'm working with them to figure out, um, basically, when I pay my property taxes on the building, I want to add to the pot 
So over 20 years, enough money will have been built up that there's enough to repaint the building. Have an, it'll take eight weeks for Dan and his crew to, to do this. So, you know, 20 years from now, if not Dan, someone just like Dan is going to be repainting the building for and spending eight weeks and there'll be a different piece of art. Because my guess is that after 20 years, we'll get tired of James Jeans's piece and maybe we want a different piece up there. But, um, but the intent is if I get hit by a bus next year, that the, there, this pot of money is still being is still accruing regardless of who owns the building because the right answer is that every 20 years a new piece gets put all over the building and by the way it's two separate buildings and also you know two roofs on each of the buildings that's 10 sides we're painting the roofs as well so there's 10 faces of this building 10 facets of this building that are getting deep saturated color on them wow Wow. Um, and, and so it's two separate buildings and it's six, six stories. And, 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 you know, I'm, it, it, I, you know, I've seen the renderings and obviously, you know, seen the exteriors and my, my first reaction is the kind of tenants um, I'm assuming it's, well, that's, it's kind of a, let me step back. So, you know, when you're designing as an architect or, or do most architects design for a type of tenant in mind? So I'm looking at this building thinking, Oh yeah, that's good. There's going to be some creatives in there. It's not, it's not going to attract maybe not insurance companies and, 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 uh, uh, accountants. I mean, it's going to be, is it, do you, do you have a specific tenant in mind for this building? Totally. So that's, that's part of the experiment. Um, well, but first of all, I got to back up and I'm not a licensed architect. So, um, so FFA is again, the architect on the dumbbell. Um, but I only do what I do to, to design. I went to, I went to architecture school, my degrees in architecture, um, uh, when I'm at a cocktail party and someone asks me what I do, I, you know, I, I, I might say, well, I, yeah, I, I want to be able to say I'm an architect, but I can't cause I'm licensed. Um, so architects sat, and the reason I became a developer is because architects don't get to answer the question you just asked. Like what did you as an architect did you design the building for a specific tenant or for a specific, uh, you know, demographic? And architects are never allowed to to ask. That's called phase zero. Architects are hired at phase one, where someone else designs phase zero. The, the developer says, "I want this to be my building. I want to do an office building. There's a lot of creative uh, office tenants. The, the market's not really being met. A lot of 12 to 15 person companies." Let's see, that's about a 4,000 square foot space for a 12 to 15 person company. There's a big demand that's being unmet in that, in that office size and that, in that company scale. Um, so I'll design a building that really works well at 4,000 square feet. Um, by the way, the dumbbell, I broke it up into two separate buildings because each building floor plate is 4,000 square feet. Instead of building one extruded lot line, 13,000 square foot building, I pulled it in and had two 4,000 square foot buildings per floor climb up to six stories. It's a smaller building than I could put there. Every other building around me is much bigger. But again, it's enough. It works. It's it's profitable enough. But it fits the perfect demographic for that creative company that doesn't want to be on the eighth floor of the big pink, the, the fourth door on the right down this kind of cold, double loaded corridor. Those kinds of companies would love to have the entire floor of 
basically a just a crazy looking building where it's exuberant on the outside because they're doing exuberant work on the inside. And I I knew I wasn't going to get like you said insurance companies and, and lawyers. The funny thing is, last week I walked a, a small law firm through and they're like, "I'll take it." So, so despite what I think, it 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 either calls to you or it doesn't. But but you're right. The initial idea was to to target a specific audience. It doesn't have to meet everybody's needs. A lot of very generic developments and bigger developments, frankly, don't have the luxury of being boutique and small and quirky and being to go after and, and, and allowing themselves to go after a specific subset of a market. And the dumbbell certainly is going after a subset of the market. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, and you also mentioned, you know, just building in general around Portland and there's, we've got some good architecture, but there's a lot of buildings here that I feel like they're, they're just so average that they're almost invisible. Like you don't even see them anymore. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, yeah. this is kind of my, my parting question. It's a kind of a cliche, but is there any, any, any buildings in Portland that stick out for you? And they, these could be older buildings. They could be newer, anything, you know, that really, you know, you look at that and you go, that's a, that's a fine looking building. Yeah. So, and this is, I'm glad you asked this too, because I, I need to be able to come back and, 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 acknowledge that I've been kind of ripping other developers and ripping poor design for a lot of this podcast. And the reality is um, Portland has, so far as I'm aware of, there are eight developers in town. I'm sure there are a lot more, but there are eight good sized developers that are doing a substantial amount of work in town that are, I mean, you should be interviewing them. They do, they do much better work than me. They're, they're, they do really good, thoughtful, badass work. So I, as much as I'm like lambasting the profession, because for the most part, the profession is more Trumpian than it should be. Um, there are some really good folk in town. Um, and at the same time, when I first moved to town, Portland was a city where the best thing about it was the spaces between the buildings. I mean, we have amazing parks we have amazing vistas. We have the smallest city blocks of any city in America. And that means that we have a lot of gaps and spaces and interplay between the buildings. And that's really compelling. Great views, great vistas. But the buildings themselves kind of get in the way of that. Uh, you really want to notice the spaces between the buildings. In the last handful of years, the buildings themselves have started to step it up. So uh, you know, the B-Side 6 building is a great example from a couple of years ago on 6th and Burnside Works Partnership designed that. My favorite building town right now is a host design. And it's it's the one north building, which is also called Karuna, which is across from the New Seasons on Fremont and between Williams and Vancouver. It's just a beautiful building. Great example of a building that could have been much larger, but it you know highest, highest and best. Um, they really paid attention to what best meant, not, not just highest. Um, and I, I'm on the spot, so I can't, I'm not, I'm blanking on the others, but you know, uh, uh, Tom Robinson over at Lever just did a neat, um, cross laminated timber building up on North Albina. His own office is in, is in there really thoughtful. Um, you know, I, I, I still think that Doug Fur as a concept piece by Jeff Cavell over at Skylab is just a badass piece of architecture. It's just, you know, um, lumberjack chic and the basement music venue with logs 
<laughs> surrounding you. It's so deeply Portland and so deeply Pacific Northwest that it's, it, you know, it's who else would do that? Where else would that work? So yeah, there's, there's four. I'm sure there's easily a dozen others that I am blanking on. Sorry. Oh no, that's okay. Yeah. And it's funny too. Cause you know, I, I'm, yeah, I'm obviously not a, a, a trained professional designer, but I feel like I'm at the point now where I'm trying to look at buildings. It's my first agenda is it, is it to scale? You start there. If it's to scale, then yeah. let's explore it more. Because if it's out of scale, I, I, I just keep walking. <laughs> I'm not interested in yeah, yeah. And that happens a lot around here. I, I, I do love that most Portlanders really care about design and architecture. And most are, I mean, Portland has the highest social capital of any city in America. And and Robert Putnam like invented social capital. And he, so the book, in the book, Bowling Alone, he talks about Portland. And and he surmises that it's because the citizenry in Portland, we have really strong neighborhood associations, stronger than most other cities. And the average person feels that their, their voice actually matters more than, I mean, even if they don't think it matters enough, it matters more than other citizens feel their voice matters in other cities. So because of that, I mean, you get random neighbors in random professions who really know the Portland zoning code. You get, you get, you get everyday folk who can, can speak archibabble better than anybody, better than architects themselves. And I love living in a city that, that is empowered that way. Um, and I, and that's one of the reasons I moved here 25 years ago. It just, it, it, it matters what we do. I lived in Sacramento my first year out of college and I, I, I wanted to be a developer and, I wanted to use, put my architecture degree to use and do neat, inventive things. And I realized that Sacramento, at the time, it's better now, but at the time, you, if I did my dream project, I wasn't, I wasn't certain that a tilt-up concrete office slab would go up next to me or a McDonald's drive through would go up next to me. It was just about increasing the, the tax base and kind of building whatever and zoning and planning and, and master vision that, that didn't really matter. And he, and back then everyone knew that Portland was the, was the, the leader on those topics, at least nationally. I think we still are amazing at that. And I love that our citizenry speaks that language and it, and I love that you, when I, if I mention an intersection in town, you're, you'd nod and go, Oh yeah, yeah I know that building. Um, you know, I know the color of that building. I might know who designed it. I, I love that about Portland. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me today. This was awesome. I could have um, taken up way much more of your time, but um, I'll, I'll let you go. Thanks again. Thanks for asking. I'm, I'm flattered. This is fun. Thanks for listening to Built Blocks. If you want more information about Kevin and Gorilla Development, check out gorilladev.co. Also, go to builtblocks.com to subscribe to the podcast and hop on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening. See you next time.